All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of No Easy Answers, a Marxist podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition. I'm here with an esteemed friend, Daniel Tutt, and today we are discussing his latest work, uh, Psychoanalysis and the Politics of the Family, the Crisis of Initiation. And, um, you know, this is a book that, uh, you know, in full disclosure, like, I haven't made my way all the way through it, um, and I've been reading it off and on. Uh, over the last, I would say, six, eight months. Because uh, when Daniel came out with this book, I thought it was a very interesting topic. I thought, uh, surely I'll give it a read, but I did not uh, realize the relevancy it would have towards my, my own life as well because, uh, um, you know, I moved back home uh, to live with my mom and take care of her and, and, and be back in Texas recently. And so as I've been encountering family dynamics once again, uh, Daniel's book has been... Uh, a companion that I that I didn't plan on and didn't foresee, and 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 uh, but it's definitely provided some some insights and ways of thinking um, around the, the the family dynamics, the decline of the paternal function, the shape of the nuclear family, you know. Um, so, you know, I want to get to like asking you, Daniel, like why you wrote this, what is the conversation you're trying to initiate with this work, you know, as I feel like you're trying to, to bring about a larger conversation. Um, but I, but I guess I want to, I wanted to start this out by phrasing that, like, so, you know, the, I, I believe it was Freud that thought, if I, I read this somewhere about how Freud thought, you know, the first Copernican, Rev, like the Copernican revolution was like man's first great sort of humbling, right? And then, after that came the the sort of Darwinian revelation that we were evolved from from monkeys and that we weren't made in the image of God and that was like a second great humbling of man and then Freud considered his his thought of like that man was not even a master in his own house like that thoughts out of the uh, that man's thoughts were not even his own they were like germinated inside of the subconscious and and so like man was not even the master of his own house as the third great sort of uh, humbling of man but I don't ever see Marx's thought spoken of in that respect, that like uh, ideas and and imagination itself is limited and linked to forces of economy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so like man is not even the own master in terms of his own like economy. Uh, uh, like it, right. man uh, does not make his environment, man's environment makes man. Um, so, I, so I think about all of that. And then I think about the shape of the nuclear family and this... I don't know why I never connected these dots, and your your book really helped me uh, sort of understand the way that forces of economy have direct impacts on the shape of the nuclear family. And there are these sort of contemporary phenomenons of things like, uh, say, for instance, bubble living. Say, for instance, like uh, polyamory. You know, I had not perhaps thought of, and, and I'm not saying that your book posed this this thought, but like part of it was like, okay, so polyamory, is that a sort of reaction towards like the cost of living like non-traditional forms of living to split the cost of living as a as a reaction to the force of economy is is a changing of the shape i think of like uh the nuclear family so anyway, right. so so all these thoughts are going through my head man and uh and i just wonder if like uh if maybe you could say a few words about like the shape of the nuclear family where that came about and and how this is as you write about like changing in our Sure. times. First of all, very happy to be back on No Easy Answers. Wonderful to see you. I love the background and the kitty cat was there, but now is gone. But uh, hopefully uh, he or she comes back. 
She'll be around. Uh, yeah. Or or could be they. We're not sure yet. Mm. But uh, uh, no. But in reality, it's really great to be back, and I'm very excited. And um, this is this is uh, also obviously um, uh, excited that you that you enjoyed the book. That it was thought provoking. It definitely was meant to be a conversation starter. And thankfully, I think you know one of the positive effects has been conversations. Um, you know, these sometimes are not easy conversations to have. Uh, the the family, as I argue in the second chapter, you may, you may remember, it's kind of kind of like the heart of of um, capitalist ideology. Um, and I, I try to say that, and I'll get to the nuclear family, maybe building off this. I try to say that, you know, if you think about it, what 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 we're trained to to do in in families is to in, is sort of cultivate a certain relationship to work and labor. And one of the um, historical um, origin points of the nuclear family is, of course, you know, it's, a, it's an invention largely of the modern age, of the industrial age. So about the 1830s up to the present develops what is called the bourgeois. So after French Revolution, the bourgeois class becomes the predominant class, which sets all of the kind of values and ideals that are then forced onto people from different backgrounds. Here I'm speaking primarily in a European context, but I think it's somewhat fair to do so because we have inherited um, for, for good and bad that those, those structures of, of family primarily. Um, although we can talk about um, structures of family that are beyond kind of a Western centric model. But nonetheless, I'm going to be focusing in a European and Western focus just just for clarification. And um, so one of the things we find is that the family is a training site for how to um, value work that is non-paid, right? Mm. Because every member of a family, whether you have a family that uh, partakes in a small business or whether, or whether you you are um, just simply having to get by on a day-to-day -day basis of household chores, feeding, keeping up with the home, keeping up with the neighborhood, et cetera. Um, one of the things that socialist feminists really focus on a lot is this notion, this notion of unpaid labor. And in fact, even in the 1970s, uh, coming out of Italy, a lot of uh, very interesting socialist feminist advocacy was called wages for housework. So trying to show through what's called social reproductive theory that the family is the kind of heart of social reproductive labor, which largely goes unpaid and goes unacknowledged. And so uh, the middle-class nuclear family is actually has a prehistory in the bourgeois family. And that's interesting. When we say the bourgeois family, that means quite a lot. It's largely structure coming out of the Victorian age so mid to late uh, 19th century. And part of what's strangely liberatory about it is the idea implicit within the bourgeois family or middle-class family, it's fair to call it middle-class family, is that there actually must be a kind of shelter from labor, a shelter from the demands of work. And that that actually is sort of what the middle-class family defines itself and Precisely the what distinguishes the middle class family from a working class family is that leisure time, because in that leisure time, the cultivation of the members of the family can happen. Right. 
they become more cultured, they learn a new language, they get more education, they become dignified. That's only afforded through leisure, but that leisure is actually concealed. And so it, it's, it's an ideal which isn't really spoken of. And so as you see in my book, a big, big thing that I think that comes out of my book that more needs to be written about is the politics of leisure time. Uh, for socialism. And I believe that the politics of leisure time is a radical form of politics. Yeah. And that, especially in America, in America is a country which prides itself, defines itself on labor and work. Politics of leisure is quite a radical gesture. And what I try to show is that the middle class family, in an interesting way, was actually founded on an implicit demand of leisure. The problem with that implicit demand of leisure is that it was patriarchal. Mm. It was, a, for most of the time, according to the father's uh, dictates, who gets leisure and who doesn't. You, you, you know, before certain laws were passed, even the middle class family, the father's authority, would determine the fate of each family member, what they would do for their occupation, what they wouldn't do for their occupation. So there was a constrained individualism internal to the bourgeois middle class family that works itself out over the decades and more and more rights are granted to individual family members especially women and one of the things that is very important to understand is that the proletarian family should be thought of in a qualitatively different form obviously and here i'm talking about the proletarian family as we encounter it in the late 19th century which i talk about a bit in the book and mm -hmm. that is an interesting experience because what the family served, you know, Marx defines a proletariat as reliant on the wage, as well as propertyless, mostly propertyless. So you see, the family emerges as one uh, gift, you could call it a gift, that the proletarians were able to muster together. If you mm. can't have property, and you're constantly working, your one um, moment of solace is the idea that you will have kin in the future and that you can love and care for them in this world, despite all of the horrors of this world and, and what they take away from you. So that in that sense, the family became radical in a certain way um, for the proletariat. Over time, the, the, the introduction of women into the labor force allowed for, you know, a, a whole expansion not only of women's rights, but a new conception of the family. And so you see the, the, the history of the family is, we don't have the time to get into it, because I really focus more on the contemporary. Sure. But the history of the family is important to understand, because by the time we get the family as we know it, which is the post-war, post-World War II, consumer era version of the family, what we're getting is a kind of beaten up and tattered construct of the family, which itself had become marketized, had become commodified. The authority of the uh, parents shifts entirely, shifts entirely in such a way that it really becomes more about um, parenting as a kind of instrumentalized task. Mm. It doesn't become about parenting as a kind of um, uh, uh, something that is more rooted in a sense of, of religion or natural law or kind of a sacred duty. In fact, parenting becomes um, cheapened in some ways. And there's many dynamics that foment that. So one of the big kind of things that I talk about is that we're sort of, ex we're witnessing a collapse 
of the promises and the ideals that went into the middle class nuclear family. It's no longer guaranteed by the state as it was in the Second World War period in what's called the Fordist era. And so this actually is, we can talk about this as well. This is actually something that's very pertinent for our generation in particular. You know, and, and, and when I say our generation, I mean folks that have gone into the workforce in a post-2008 neoliberal disciplinary society in which wages continue to diminish, labor protections continue to diminish, and, you know, people are working two, three jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So when we talk about the family, in some sense, we're kind of talking about old models. We've got to talk about history, right? We've got to, we've got to sort yeah. of look at what, what's gone down. And not to mention the fact that, you know, you also have distinct types of the family that can be quite, I would say, revolutionary. And even when we talk about the black family, I get into in the conclusion of the book, there's some quite, quite powerful um, insights that proletarian families have given to the left that's worth studying and worth understanding. So... Yeah, there's a lot there, man, and all of this is fascinating to me. I, you know, the particularly, I mean, I guess I want to touch on the, um, just to start here and and kind of un unpack a lot of this, man. Um, Christopher Lash is a writer who um, I've heard you speak quite a lot about, and he has this book and and called Haven in a Heartless World, and I think, you know, that saying uh, has sort of, you know, I haven't gone back and 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 read some. Christopher Lash at this point, but like the, the Haven in a heartless world thing, as it pertains to like the family being a shelter from labor, like family being the one place where, uh, I suppose an individual in today's capitalist society is valued for something other than their labor, you know? Uh, and, and I've heard you speak in question, you know, is the nuclear family still like a Haven in a heartless world? Um, and and the notion of like a radical family, like that 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 a family is radical, like a gift to the the proletariat. Like, despite all that's gone on, you've somehow managed to scrape together and have this one gift of a nuclear family. Like, uh, on the one hand, I wonder if you could. I just wonder if you could speak to like the tension between like, you know, like uh, the the sort of call to abolish the nuclear family. Uh, you know, in in uh in some of the works of Marx and Engels, right? Versus like mm -hmm. how the family is radical, like. Uh, Maybe you could speak to like the the way the the image of the bourgeois family anchors the the bourgeoisie in a way because it, mm -hmm. it kind of uh, I don't know maybe you could speak to like how it anchors yeah. it and the bourgeois family and 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 maybe the tension between the call to abolish the family versus like how right. it's radical. Yeah, let's get into it. So obviously, in Communist Manifesto, we read, according to Marx and Engels, that one of the demands of the communists is for the abolition of the family. Now. If I, if as I mentioned earlier, the bourgeois family stands as the kind of um, limited and contradictory family that's on offer, right? Mm. Kind of like um, it, it's it's a classic trope of bourgeois social life to create kind of uh, one standard that not everyone can attain, and this creates all kinds of feelings of rivalry, and you kind of need psychoanalysis to understand a society that's racked by people in states of desperation, people in states of competitive rivalry, people in states of um, despair. Um, so in that sense, yes, it's 
to this is this is a delicate debate which I've had the the honor of having with contemporary family abolitionists on the left who I respect a lot. It, it's not to say that it's one answer. It's not to say that uh, Marxists must insist on a total abolition of all of the kind of remnants of what we mean by the family. No, in fact, I would argue that dialectically speaking, what Marx and Engels are talking about when they say abolition of the family is a kind of incorporation of aspects of the ideal that the proletariat made out of the bourgeois family. And, and Eli Zaretsky is a great historian on this that I that I work with in my book a lot. Mm. And one of the things that he shows is that uh, we wouldn't really have the category of what we now today call personal experience, this idea of personal experience, which obviously we throw around in a very general sense all the time. But that actually came from the proletarian family's experience with a particular form of leisure that the family allowed. See, because working conditions were so bad for, for the working class in Europe at a certain time that you know, the only, when you say haven in a heartless world, it's it's even more basic than that. It, it was it was sort of like the family is the only site where something meaningful can take place for you, right? If you right. truly are a kind of proletarianized person, which is why um, most people I know anecdotally, they come from working class backgrounds, and we see this confirmed in working class studies all, all the time. So they, they have a much more um, passionate attachment to family bonds than do middle class people. That's not to fetishize them or to say that they're overly moralistic or that they're they're nostalgic. It's just a concrete material fact based on the bonds of necessity that emerge through real struggle. That's all that that means. It's not it's not anything more than that. It's not some romantic thing about the working classes is better than middle classes. I'm not trying to foment. A class hatred. I'm trying to foment a more rational literacy about class experience. And so when you go back to this notion of personal experience being born from the family, as Zaretsky says, what he basically means is that um, that's a, when you have more leisure, right? Communism is free time. That That's a motto that is that Marx spoke about a lot. I mean, the later Marx also spoke about the necessity because, you know, the Communist Manifesto is written at a time of a great revolutionary upheaval. But there's other points in Marx's life where the class struggle is more muted. It's more mm -hmm. convoluted. It's more complex. And he would say, well, the priority is to increase the the well-being, the livelihood, the, the, the possibility for the proletariat to fight. And in order to do that, they need time to think. They need time to um, value themselves and their loved ones. So the, all of that's not against socialist principles to say that, in my view, if that makes sense to you, right? Right, right. So my position would be that abolition remains a kind of horizon, which doesn't make sense unless we bring into the conversation a, a, a language about class. And that's one of the things I try to do in this, in our day and age. And one of the things you'll probably notice, and I know, Jules, based on your affiliations and your work, you're interested in working class experience. I, I am as well. And I feel that that's a conversation that the left is just starting to have. It often feels that way to me. Um, we're not like, you know, I mean, this is, you know, if, if you were to do a kind of radar of class consciousness, I think things are pretty low, right? 
Um, so my, my position is that um, there is a kind of new, and I have a new article coming out on this, uh, where I do a lot of empirical studies about this kind of chasm that's emerging. Because one of the things we're seeing, for example, that I talk about in the conclusion is called the rise of assertative marriage. You know, people now marry predominantly from class backgrounds that they are born into. That's what, who they marry. That, that wasn't true in the Fortis period, right? right. We also see a, a very uh, new dynamic whereby divorce happens way more frequently by a large uh, swath for working class people than it does for middle class people. Hmm? So there's a lot of new trends that are class-based and that the family then produces a kind of experiential, like we can say something about that. So one of the things we're also seeing, by the way, is that a lot of young working, like millennial age working class people if you read jennifer silva's book uh, for example she shows that the values that working class people have about the family tend to be pro-family not necessarily in some religious way but rather they don't they wouldn't see their life as complete unless they were able to have a family right, right. so as socialists i think it's important that we take that with sober eyes and we say what actually are the consequences of those realities of the fact that the economic and social conditions are so dire that people are facing these obstacles how does that actually militate people or how does it not militate people into the left right if the if if just under half of americans don't really go to college and within that cohort of people they express these sentiments about family right and we on the left aren't speaking to those lived experiences, that to me is a major problem of the left, right? It, it, not only because of the question of suffering, but because of the practical question of how we're going to work and organize with that population. Right, right. <clears throat> yeah, you know, uh, when I think of... Um, so the thought process on, like, the nuclear family and the way that it was uh, kind of a construction of the Fordist era and, and, and the ways that... I mean, it seems like middle-class families are constantly at odds and struggling to sort of live up and live into the image of the bourgeois family. You know, I think of, I don't know, as I was reading your stuff, I started to think of like, I don't know, almost like the, like the print that are, on, that are on the inside of the walls of Abercrombie and Fitch stores of these like all-American bros that are like tossing a football <laughs> around in a very sort of almost like Hemingway-esque sort of uh imagery you know and uh and even their slogan of like uh casual luxury and 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 that store came to mind in such a way because like their their products were sold on this image of like you could be like these people like only beautiful people behind the counter sort of thing like it was an awful store right so Anyway, so I'm thinking of this image of the bourgeois family and always living up and into it, you know, and, and, and the working class family always knowing that, like, uh, these things aren't a given. These things are more difficult to achieve than, than a child can understand when faced w uh, with these sort of precarities of, uh, that you know, one faces as part of the working class, right? So um, that tension in keeping up with the bourgeois family is also, like, compounded by the difficulties of the working class family contending with like uh just economic forces i think you know and so i yeah um absolutely. so like as i'm as i'm sitting here 
at, at home and, you know, reacquainting myself with the dynamics of having my mother and father in the same house, right? Uh, and, and, and during this time, like, so I move home. My sister's been living at home for like 10 years. And my stepbrother at this point also like starts having some problems with his wife and he ends up moving back home. So this has been like a, almost like a Royal Tenenbaum sort of moment for me. It's like uh, once, uh, you know, that, that movie went out, Baldwin narrates about how all of her children were under the same roof once again. Like that has happened here. And it's been a really wonderful thing to live through at almost 40 years old to have almost like a second childhood with my siblings. Um, but I start to think of the way my stepdad, the sort of patriarch of this family, sees the sort of tide of economic forces that are beyond his control, right? So like as a, as a man, as the head of a family, you, you, you hope that you teach your children to go out into the world and make their way and be upright citizens and what have you and, and, and always, you know, I don't know, have a job, keep a job. You train them in this sort of uh, training ground of a family for being a member of the labor force. And then the sort of erosion of economic forces sends your kids back onto your own island, right? Sends your kids back. And I start to think of like, you know, the, the, the decline of the paternal function, as you, as you say. And, I, and then my mm. mind thinks about how like, well, if we're talking about how the nuclear family is sort of a, you know, uh, you know, someone was telling me as well, that like in Spain, there are like, there, there are multi-generational homes because like the, the parents in this generation have to move home with their grandparents because the parents no longer have a pension. And then the kids, the, which are the grandkids of the last generation with a pension have to move back home. So their family unit is like multi-generational now and culturally. Mm -hmm. Apparently mm -hmm. this is like a, a thing to be, that's been noticed and talked about is that like now the shape of the family is, is becoming sort of multi-generational uh, right. because of these tides of economy. Right. So, right. so I, so I just, you know, in terms of the decline of the paternal function, there's even stuff that like socialists would advocate for that would, you know, on the one hand, like if we talked about, like if we could snap our fingers and had, you know, free and fair housing for everybody in an instant, it would be a, it would be something to celebrate that divorce rates would skyrocket and that women would be able to leave these, uh, or people right. in general, not just women, right. but you know, anyone would be able to leave a, uh, right. an unhealthy relationship and, and and, and start over and, 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 and make that move for themselves with, you know, free housing or, or socialized housing. Anyway, but I think that would, you know, something like that would also have its own role in affecting the sort of, or displacing mm -hmm. the, the, or contributing towards the decline of the paternal function. Sure. So maybe you could talk about the decline uh, yeah, of the paternal let's, function. Yeah, let's there. break it down. So yeah. we could say in short, or sort of in general, rather, that the decline of the paternal function, what do we mean by that? Well... From a psychoanalytic point of view, um, in order to, as a subject, it's kind of, there, there needs to be a kind of mediation with an overcoming of dependencies that one develops in infancy and early childhood with your parents, right? And this is the famous Freudian Oedipus complex, right? There's many different um, theories about Freud's Oedipus complex. But let's just let's just kind of summarize it overall for the benefit of your listeners. Sure. As a kind of struggle that is about the development of a kind of um, independence from the parents, ultimately, 
right? Now here's the here's the catch, the kind of caveat that's I think really important to to pick up on, which is that um, there's sort of a debate within psychoanalytic community about the position of the father. The father is kind of a functionary position. It's plural, meaning it's plural, right? It's not just 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 the biological father. But the argument is, is that as a constitutive part of what it means to be a human being, kind of more autonomous to 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 undergo um, maturity, to undergo stages of development, etc., there does need to be a pass a working through of the Oedipus complex, and there's early stages of this that I analyze in the book um, that are about like literally like. How one gets introduced to the field of speech and to the field of language relies on X sort of moving away from the comfort of the mother's womb and care. And some psychoanalysts argue that that's a traumatic move that we never fully recover from that kind of independence from the motherly womb care. Whereas um, other psychoanalysts don't. But I, I follow the line of the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan who tends to see this um, relationship uh, to the mother as one that is, it um, calls kind of a, something that kind of forever repetitively haunts our psyche. It's, it's, uh, it's not to say that he's anti-feminine or anti-mother or anything like that. It's just to say that his structure of psychoanalysis is one in which that is a very significant break. So. It is the father who introduces the subject to language, according mm. to Lacan, which means that that process is a mediated process whereby, um, like if you take, for example, a psychotic person, somebody who has a schizophrenic episode or is experiencing psychosis in some way. For Lacan, um, the most consistent reason as to what how psychosis develops is a defective paternal function is a defective relationship to the father function again not just the biological father function because lacan argues that in modern in the modern world uh the father function is already fragmented and plural and in fact when we talk about the historical breakdown of the paternal function which when we say paternal function we really just mean like the efficacy not just authority, but the efficacy of the paternal of parents to initiate their children into stages of self-development and mm. self-overcoming, right? Well, ever since really 1830s, industrial capitalism has weakened that possibility. And so if you take a materialist analysis, what you can basically say is that capitalism already weakens the paternal function and it does that um in a lot of different ways it, that that become super super heightened in fact this is why i turned to the frankfurt school adorno horkheimer who made an argument that in the second world war post second world war period our period uh the the, the bourgeois family the middle class family is experiencing a heightened defective possibility for families to initiate their children into a healthy relationship to authority 
So they actually make some, and many psychoanalytic thinkers have done this as well. They link that to even things like fascism, right? So that when the father's um, role within the household is a brutal dictatorial role, well, that's actually not, uh, that, that actually points to a symptom of a decline of a healthy paternal function. That's not like the norm. Right to right. to assume that that would be the norm, is 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 a str well. Then if that if you assume that, then you could say, ah, well now let's definitely abolish the family if that's the norm. If the norm of the bourgeois middle class <clears throat> family, yeah, it is for the father to be a dictator, then I'm all for abolishing it. Sure, right. right. Um, but I don't think that's really the norm. I think that's actually pointing to a symptomatic sign of a decline elsewhere. Right. Wilhelm Reich's mass psychology mm -hmm. of fascism basically makes an argument that the family was so repressive in fascist societies that the father's authority was so stunted and had to be overcompensated that this actually was producing a highly repressed individual who needed repressive outlets that they didn't find in society. And this led to a propensity of hyperviolence in society, right? So from a repressive family, you can have immense. Now, the kind of, by the way, the kind of social violence that we experience today with mass shooters and things of this nature points to something different than that. It doesn't point to a dictatorial father. Our problem with the father today is not that they are little tyrants. That's not quite the problem with the fathers. Problem with the fathers is that, um, in a sense, they themselves have been deprived of the possibility of working through. Like, it's an important thing if if this notion of Oedipus of a working through of paternal dependencies is blocked from people from people like they can't quite realize it. That's a sort of generalized. If if that becomes a generalized condition of the culture that can produce possibly liberatory effects, or what do I mean by that? It can produce more horizontal relations. It can produce the notion of chosen family. It can produce a libertine opportunity to um, freely choose who will be your parent, etc. And that's somewhat like the world we live in to an extent, although again, for the working class, the issue is a bit different because they don't have the liberty to say, I'm going to go choose family X, Y, or Z, right? So there's that interesting class dynamic that, that, that interests me. And it's such a sensitive conversation, Jules, because we're talking about the most real things on earth, right? Yeah. These, these are the bonds of family. There's nothing more real than that. And, and there's nothing more political than that, right? Yeah. So it's super... This is why I'm drawn to the topic, you know, it's like, to me, it's like, no BS. It's like, this is the heart of, of so much. I you feel know like, yeah, like, I mean, I feel like <clears throat> I, uh, in reading your book, I was struck more than once of like, how have I kind of glossed over this aspect of this topic, uh, of such importance. Um, and, um, you know, I, because I feel like there's a space for this in, in this conversation, I'll bring this up. And I, I haven't brought this up on the show before. And it's something that I feel like is a very sensitive thing in that, like, and, and I, I guess this line of thought, I've started to refer to it 
when I've thought of it in, internally, like I've referred to it as sort of a, the unburdening of men. Because it's not like a, not like a men's rights thing, not like a, uh, in any way posturing men and, and, and as, a, as, a, as a victim or what have you. But there, are, there is a certain amount of like unique male suffering that masculinity takes on in the world that um, does not really have care or attention towards an outlet for that or a healthy way of resolving that. And uh, so there's a certain amount of sort of, uh, I guess maybe maybe you would call it that sort of like failure of initiation into sort of healthy and positive uh, outlooks, dynamics, uh, things that, that, that men are sort of just kind of left by the wayside to overcome themselves, you know? Uh, and, and so the... So it's a sensitive conversation, and it's and it's something that I've struggled to even bring up at times because right. uh, how do you do that without sounding like a like a red pilled sort of men's rights advocate or something? Well, that's know? actually why Freud said that the child is the father of the man. That's a phrase of his. It's mm -hmm. a very interesting phrase. Freud was very. Uh, this is why he's one of the great thinkers. You know, uh, that that's a phrase that pertains to our time and to his time and to. The modern time this is why it's why freud is not speaking from a, a time that's too far away from us you see mm. and even freud's notion of the birth of of society in his notion of the myth of the primal father is a very nuanced idea because what it basically says is that modern things like modern values of democracy, freedom, individualism, liberty, et cetera, these broad mm -hmm. values. He creates this argument in Totem and Taboo that, well, that was only made possible by the murder of the tyrant father. So society is actually founded on the murder of the tyrant father, what he calls the primal father. And that that actually, but, but, that imaginary imagination we still retain in uh, our cultural unconscious, right? Such that uh, we still assign fathers in general as partially monstrous. In other words, um, Freud will say that the bond of society is a bond of equality that's made amongst the brothers as a pact not to repeat and not to return to the actions of the tyrant father. Mm. So in a sense, modern society, civility, possibility of civility has to do with the rights of each brother, um, not to insist on becoming a tyrant themselves. Right. It's a very interesting, basic idea of what Freud's mean by means by politics and many people have there's a lot to say about that but one of the um one of the insights there is that if there is a kind of historical imprint of this struggle with patriarchy that we're constantly having um one of the things I say about our modern about our time that I get from the French philosopher Alain Badiou mm. is a really interesting idea where he says that the struggle for initiation into settling this rivalrous basis of overcoming but the Oedipus complex usually happens based on the envy of the father back to the son in today's time. 
And part of the reason that that happens has to do with the fact that as a culture, we tend to fetishize youth and that, that uh, the virility of youth becomes the kind of high ideal. And so the uh, struggle between fathers and sons is a big interest of mine, not only because of biographical reasons, having dealt with father who is um, a kind of, uh, I don't know, exemplary, almost mythical case of a uh, classical father. My father's very classical mm. in his authoritarian basis. I'm not going to get into mm -hmm. too much sure. of the details, sure. but, but, but nonetheless, being able to theorize that, right, and being able to undergo my own psychoanalytic process therapy mm -hmm. has, been, has been liberating, right? Because one of the feelings that I've had in my life as a 42-year-old man is that our culture now doesn't have clear delineation points for what it means to be an adult. Now, that's not to say that I'm interested in um, fetishizing tradition or adulthood or anything like that. It's rather to say, how do we get at this dynamic, which is real, which I think is empirically happening, and look at it from another lens, especially for me, looking at it from the perspective of socialism and Marxism. So I'm going into the weeds of stuff that often people associate with conservatives and traditionalism, but I'm actually coming out the other side and I'm saying, no, I don't embrace conservatism. I don't embrace traditionalism, but I recognize social processes that are happening that these people are not giving good prescriptions to. So what mm. can we on the left give, can we, can we give better prescriptions to these crises? If we're, if, a, and then B, can we analyze them better than the right does? And my contention is that we do and we can. Yeah. Yeah, man. Wow. Um, so, you know, all that being said, man, in terms of, uh, I will say that I abolished my dad. Uh, and I feel like that was a real demarcation in my development towards adulthood. And I feel like, uh, you know, think about, if we think about a long timeline over a lifespan with, say, something like uh, religion and Christianity, like it, it's it's a very, you know, you think of, you know, referring to God as the father and stuff, the family dynamic over a long timeline. You don't escape like the the rules and the guidelines dictated to you, to you by your religious father, like you never escape that dynamic It's an extended sort of childhood right. under the father for as long as you're a part of that religion. But the right. objective in, you know, development within a traditional family is that at some point, like, there is a break. You know, there is uh, a point where you, sure, you've absorbed and abided by your father's directives and ethics and systems of moral values or whatever, and, and then at some point, you grow the ability to not only critique but implement your own sort of ethics at that point. And um, so that break with the family and that and that sort of envy, I mean, you're talking about like the envy between fathers and sons being kind of the, I, I guess, the, the symbol of, of that change of dynamic. And I mean, in, in Texas, it's real simple. You just come home with a gun that's bigger than your father's, you know? Um, right. And it's... it's yeah, this, a, is, this is actually why psychoanalysis was, should be understood in its relationship to the military and to the army. Sure. And, and to war. And that may sound weird for me, for me to say that, but let me explain. 
Well, one of the things the psychoanalysis teaches is that if the Oedipal rivalry with the father is real, which I think it is, um, violence is not going to solve it. Yeah. And in fact, what you need is a more refined, emotional, affective set of tactics to win as a son. So if the Oedipus complex is real, and I tell this to people like my brother all the time, uh, you're not going to win just by killing the bastard. Because psychically, you're not free. Psychically, yeah. you're still dependent. Psychically, you still have a dependence. Right. The question is, how does one overcome the dependence? Yeah? And in order to do that, you sort of benefit from psychoanalysis. Because what psychoanalysis shows is that the father is a stand-in function. It could be any father. You could be an orphan, and it could be a father that's been imposed upon you by pure chance. Right? Mm -hmm. We don't always need to think about it in quasi-Christian natural law terms, right? So psychoanalysis, when you undergo psychoanalysis, you'll kind of discover that it's about a more thorough abolition, a more thorough working through to develop strange and perverse attachments that you've had. I mean, the classic case is when you have a subject who has a violent affect to their father, that's an indication dialectically that they also have a perverse love attachment as well. Not mm -hmm. sexual, not necessarily sexual, because one of Freud's big insights, he's a great dialectical thinker, as he said, uh, ambivalence defines the relationship to the father. Ambivalence. Ambivalence meaning that love and hate are a dialectic of opposites, right? So that attachment is an ambivalent attachment. How do you work through ambivalence? You don't work through ambivalence just with one affect. You got to bring more resources to, to bear. Mm. So that's actually what I mean by maturity. I don't mean maturity as some marketing slogan, right? I mean maturity as a, as a more complex version of working through, which can take a lifetime. I mean, the downside is if you do have a monstrous father, it's going to take you more time to work through those dynamics that he has traumatically imposed on you, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to take more time. But that's the labor that has to be done. I think one of the one of the challenges is for folks that say, I don't, I don't need to do that labor. I would argue that psychoanalysis are, would, would, would give a rebuttal to that and say, actually, it's not about him. It's about you and you needing to passageway through that chasm that he has imposed on you right? It's not about him. You're not doing the work for him. You're doing the work for you, but you got a passageway through these intricate, because we're talking about the unconscious. And psychoanalysis argues that by doing analysis, simply what, what analysis does is that it asks you to lighten your intellectuality, to lighten up, and to talk about anything you want. And in the process of talking about anything you want, freely associating, you begin to touch upon things that really matter, but which you didn't know that they mattered. Hmm? And right. then your, your, your therapist is going to push you more in those areas. So you're, you're having a kind of awareness of your unconscious in the process, right? So, But to avoid all of that, especially for folks like you and, and like me that, that need to face that, I think is not something i would advise i wouldn't advise that i don't want to be um 
a cheerleader for psychoanalysis here, but I, uh, I think there's other forms of therapy that one can do, right? I wouldn't recommend cognitive behavioral therapy, which is the corporate standard version of therapy I think is highly problematic. Like gaslighting yourself kind of thing. You know, it was like uh, reframing things and like things happen for you. Things don't happen to you. Uh, oh, yeah. That kind of well, bullshit. Yeah, there's many aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy that bother me. I mean, I think um, part of it's it's, um, it's too short. It's highly instrumentalized. It's about performance. It's um, It doesn't get at the heart of things. It's very surface. And ultimately, they're going to send you to get a bunch of pills. Yeah. Right, and get you to, yeah. So there's many there's many problems, and it's not that psychoanalysis is, is opposed to pills, but they do have a different view on how uh, things like depressants and anti-anxiety pills can work than does cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very austerity driven, very neoliberal. They just want to get you on those pills and send you off because right. you're you you know they don't want to pay for it. So, anyways, I'm I'm getting excited talking and going on a little tangent. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but basically, I think that <clears throat> this this business of the paternal function, kind of where we started, is that it has a long history. I mean, even stretching back to the 19th century, if you study like novelists and writers of European culture, people identified the the collapse of paternal authority like uh, more than a century ago. It's not necessary. I don't want you to think it's necessarily a brand new thing. It is, it is, it is also at the same time heterogeneous, right? That's not one thing. Mm -hmm. What we're trying to identify are certain cultural and social forces of capitalism that exacerbate it, right? And that's where it's important, in my view, to get a sense of our conjecture. And why why this is important for socialist thought is to get a sense of well, how does a working class relate to authority? And what is the relationship between the family as a unit and how it indoctrinates us into viewing the world, viewing society, et cetera? I mean, I was raised in an ultra-conservative uh, household. If I wouldn't have rebelled against that, I'd probably be, you know, a kind of uh, Jordan Peterson fan or worse. Or yeah. worse. Yeah. You know? What, probably worse. You know? So... I've been rebelling against these tendencies my whole life, right? It's just a question of like, how do you succeed? It's almost like uh, psychoanalysis ups the ante of the rebellion. That's why it's radical, you see? It's a, it's a radical art form or practice of, of, of a more thorough kind of liberation of the self. Right. I, would, I would characterize it that way. I think that we could... Uh... I could definitely talk to you for a whole other podcast episode that would be a multi-part thing dealing with the question that I have heard you ask, I think, on, on Juisan's Vampires, on, on your, your own podcast, like, how does one kill the father adequately? Is like a question that I, when I listened to your podcast and heard you, I forget which guest you asked that. But when I heard you ask that question, I actually had to pause and like think about that for a second because I had never quite and adequately doing a lot of work in that query, you know, um, right. But, but instead of like stewing on that specific question, I think it was what I found really interesting in, in reading your stuff also was about uh, how you you make the case that like super egoically the, the society and institutions have taken on not a sort of 
patriarchal dynamic, but like the dynamic of like an abusive mother or something to that? Well, end? yeah. So this, yeah. Okay. So this is something we should talk about. Um, I think that on the left, uh, words matter and discourse matters a lot. How we present ourselves and, you know, etiquette and uh, et cetera. Therefore, I would never agree with a framework, even if it has a smidgen of kind of analytic truth or empirical truth to it. I wouldn't frame it that way. I actually try to show that some theorists, even like Slavoj Žižek, are, they're not, they're, they're sort of willing to sort of put the onus on the mother. That like, in other words, the argument goes like this. With the decline of um, the efficacy of the paternal function, uh, what we have emerged is that all castrating mother. In other words, if the Oedipus mm. process is not able to be overcome by the children, as they age, a recurring experience that they will have is a sense of ultra persecution and a sense that they are being swallowed whole, right? Or a sense of castration, which of course Freud tells us comes from the early anxiety we had as babies, especially males, that our penis will be chopped off, right. which is a common and recurring fear and anxiety. So some commentators on culture from Lash to Zizek and others have not been shy in basically saying, yeah, the, the new uh, structure of the family actually has a pernicious mother more so than the pernicious father. If anything, the father's authority is, is a kind of self-conscious weakness. Right. Like you could think about this movie. Um, what's it called? Project X, where the son throws a massive party when the parents go out of town. So it's called okay. Project X. I'm not even sure. Yeah. yeah. I have you seen that movie? I have not. No. Project X. Let's see. Yeah. Project X. Is, it came out actually in 2012. It's it's a comedy. Yeah. And, uh, it, it's a very interesting film. Uh, it, it points to this precise dynamic where he. He's he's a he's a nerdy kid. He has no friends, uh, very few. Is made fun of in high school. Parents leave. They live in a mansion, whatever suburbs. And uh, dad says, uh, "Do not throw a party. If you do, you're going to be in big trouble." And uh, mom reaffirms it, etc. Parents leave. He throws a massive party. It's everybody comes, and he's like the new popular guy after doing this. And the house is absolutely destroyed. And Upon returning to the house, the father uh, expresses envy to the kid, like, I didn't think you had it in you. I slightly envy you for doing, for breaking my. Yeah. So it, it's kind of a funny example, but it points to this dynamic. So anyway, so, um, but a deeper, let's just, let's take a deeper look at this issue of the superego. So basically, one argument that a lot of authors of psychoanalysis and Marxism will make is they'll say that uh, the superego, as Freud encountered it, it in his time, was much more stable. It was much more um, based on the father's authority, even though I said capitalism has this propensity to erode the father's authority. And in Freud's time, people say that the superego was still largely a patriarchal one and that it was a kind of um, uh, a sense in which people related to the ideals of society, the ideals that emanated from their elders, they could be passed on, 
there was a sense of of respect, et cetera, et cetera. There was there was a sense in which um, the, these ideals had a clear transmit line of transmission, right? Whereas in consumer capitalist society, uh, a lot of folks say that this super egoic structure has been weakened, and this is what I what I refer to as the socialized version of the super ego, where basically there's there's no sense of authority being embodied in one individual rather it's a kind of acephalic authority that's um not centralized mm. it's generalized almost paranoiac i mean it's no surprise that one of the main genres of postmodern literature is paranoia there's no surprise also that the lozenguateri called capitalism schizophrenic right right, right? it's a changing dynamic and authority that's all that's all I'm trying to point out. Sure. That's not that's not the fault of the mother, but I think it does uh point to a shift that is real. Um that is that is experienced consistently in in a shift in a form of of authority within the family. But the real the real fact is is that the family the parents of families now are both stripped from the transmission of ideals. This is like a whole uh, crisis that people have been writing about for decades, right? And and that is through um, the imposition of different marketizing logics onto the family. Not only the fact that the family is taken away from free time and leisure, but from the fact that all of the kind of work that is required to raise kids, so little of that comes from the original position or ingenuity of the parents that the parents actually become marginal to the children in the process yeah it's in other words it's very difficult for parents and children to develop positive and constructive ideals towards one another in some sense um that's a result of the fact that the collapse of the welfare state as well right the collapse of the welfare state means that what it means to okay it's not only the working class that's living with their parents late in age. It's also middle class too. Yeah. These pressures are so immense. That's why. Like I'm writing a new article right now where I show that um, the number one source that working class people turn to to handle these dynamics is um, therapy culture, self-help, things like that. And they're because the new dating market, it's sometimes called the new intimacy. If you read like a book um, called The End of Love by Eva Aluz. Well, it's like you have to read all this shit in order to even have a Tinder profile because everyone wants to know your fucking love language, bro. And it's like this is some exactly. self-help exactly. bullshit that like, exactly. or, uh, or, you know, the best advice you get from a guy at a bar is to make your bed, um, which you don't know if he's a Peterson bro or that general, whatever his name is, uh, the Admiral who uh, preached that stuff at... Uh, anyway, so yeah, but like self-help and modern dating is is kind of infused it's like you have exactly. to exactly there's like required reading of the four agreements before you get down to, to meeting a woman at this point or at least in, in that, the heteronormative that's exactly right. world of stuff yeah and and that's actually that's i argue that that actually is a sort of positive outcome partially positive this is sure this contra contradiction of of bourgeois capitalism of the sexual revolution right because what that indicates is what's the primary demand the primary demand according to people from all class backgrounds when they're dating 
is for a partner to be emotionally resilient and emotionally there and mature, right? Now, for men, there is a massive struggle going on right now, not only on the economic set, but also on this emotional maturity piece. Not to say that men are kind of um, stunted in that way per se. It's just rather that what it requires to attain to that level is so onerous that people now feel as if the spontaneity and the sense of chance and risk is completely absent from dating, mm. completely. That's what like surveys are showing, right? And you probably experienced that anecdotally perhaps, but you know, but uh, so this is creating a real crisis added to which <coughs> the economic crisis is such that people cannot, cannot engage in marriage and, and, and the possibility of family construction itself. So it's a multi-layered crisis we're dealing with, you know, and um, and I don't know how to make the self-help piece other than to say that aspects of it need to be embraced, whereas these marketized, instrumentalized aspects need to be rejected, right? But because for me, like all the books that I read from from literature to poetry to even to philosophy, it's like so it's like six hundred times better than all the self-help because it's like yeah. it's that plus an infinite degree more, right? So that's my that's always my response. Like I'd rather read Stendhal or Proust. Well, I mean, even even the most Warren like Raymond's. yeah, like even the uh, the the guys who have uh, or I say guys, it's mostly men, white men, uh, people like I guess the most like the self help guys who have made the most money and have been the biggest grifters of shit. You think about like people like Napoleon Hill. Uh, Eckhart Tolle in my mind, uh, Werner Earhart, uh, you know, these are all people who have either co-opted and appropriated and renamed the jargon that goes along with like Buddhism or Stoicism. Mm -hmm. uh, even someone like Werner Earhart took and kind of spun Heidegger into some like, uh, and into some Eastern Buddhism and, and stuff like that. That ends up being this, uh, you know, ends up being something called landmark education now, ends up being large group awareness trainings and uh, and shit like that. So, you know, even the uh, the self-help guys are actually rooted in some philosophy and they're just marketing it in like a sort of panacea yeah. sort of way. Um, Absolutely. But I, you know, I think about like when you talk about the, uh, you know, one thing that kind of I, I know it may seem kind of a field, but like, you know, when. When uh, when you say that like these forces are, I mean, I believe that the the sort of like dissatisfaction and the the utter failures of liberalism, whether it's like the you know collapse of the welfare state or whether it's uh, the every ten years having a financial crisis, which is driven even towards uh, mutating the shape of the nuclear family. You know, like, there are people on Twitter that are fucking monarchists, man. Uh, there are mm -hmm. people that I've found that are anti-natalists. Um, and these sort of, it's not just that they're reactionary positions, but in the, I think that these forces are so heavy and so beyond any one individual that individuals without adequate sort of class consciousness are reaching for items, like in the case of the monarchists, right? Like it's 2023 and you're reaching for 
you know, sign of like Joseph de Maestra as a guiding yeah. sort of thing. You yeah. know, it's, it's wild yeah. to me. But it's like the discontents of liberalism and the failures of liberalism have spawned not only these right. mutations of the nuclear family, but these ultra-reactionary positions that are like... And in the case of like antinatalism, you know, that is... These are also direct effects on the shape of the nuclear family as in like these people wish to discontinue that completely in the face of climate change, perhaps in the mm-hmm. face of, uh, I don't know, like increasing personal privilege and liberty or something. I don't, uh, right. anyway, so, so all this being said, man, and, and going back to the super egoic forces of like the, of, of the, of the, of the overbearing mother, I suppose. I mean, I don't know how to phrase it. Um, I just mean to say that like, I, I hope that out of this conversation, more people start to take a look and notice the effects of economic forces on things like the shape of the nuclear family, the political outlooks one holds, and 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 one's way of like, I don't know, like it, it, how does if one adopts a position of antinatalism, surely like one questions where that position came from. But I don't know that that person looks and says like that's because of economy, you know. Yeah. No. This is. I, I think that. Oftentimes, the ideology of the family today we encounter on both the right and the left is is changed a lot. And it's changed in interesting ways. One of the things I try to argue is that, in a sense, the imagination of the family that we that we all share alike is what I call the proletarianized family. Mm. right? What I mean by that is that it's a paradox, actually. Uh, in the field of ideology, in like the field of like rhetorical political speech, no one is permitted to make a real strong defense for the old bourgeois values I talked about at the beginning of our interview, which are kind of like, oh, well, the family should get a break. The family should be this receptacle of leisure. No one's making that argument, right? <laughs> right. What, what, right? Even, yeah. even I, 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 my, my best example of this was, um, uh, the Fox News host, uh, I forget her name, she argued against the student loan cancellation. She argued that my mother, her mother, worked till she was in her 70s to put me through college. And then by extension, the argument goes, all mothers should be forced into a similar position if they must, right? Mm-hmm. That's a extraordinarily perverse form of particularism that conservatives a few decades ago probably wouldn't argue at all. It's a sign of the deterioration that neoliberalism has done to to politics writ large, because even the left, hardly anybody on the left would be like a champion for the working class family as such. So I'm not arguing that we necessarily center the working class family's needs as the locus of socialist demands. I think actually we should leave that up to the working class more generally. If they choose to engage in that social reproductive activity, that's fine. Rather, rather, a politics centered on free time, the demand of radical free time and leisure time, I think should be thought about and put forward. At least more analysis, study, et cetera, of it. I mean, this was actually at the center of a new book on socialist philosophy by Martin Hagland at Yale um, called This Life. He mm-hmm. ends it. He ends the book. 
And he says, look, if we accept uh, the fate of a cosmos, which is atheistic, ultimately, uh, what do we have left? We have left our, our free time, right? So in that sense, instead of the kind of hyper entrepreneurial thing, like, oh, with your free time, you always going to be working on your next project. Well, going back to the experience of proletarian family in 19th century, what was developed there was the sphere of personal experience, which is separate from the neoliberal idea of constantly having a project to engage in. What would it look like to be relating to that zone of free time and leisure in that fundamentally leisurely way? It's almost, I fear almost that we're losing even the political imagination for it. I don't want that to dissipate, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so it's something that I, I think that needs to be needs to be discussed and processed, and that's part of what I was trying to do with the book. Well, you know? what's interesting is, like, I mean, I've heard of uh, people calling on Marxists to have a politics that has a more positive affirmation of work and not just a positive affirmation of leisure time. But I think you get at something deeper by insisting that we uh, think more deeply on the topic of leisure time, its necessity, perhaps it's our inheritance in a way, you know, and as a sort of act of rebellion against this sort of fetishization of productivity that we have in contemporary capitalism, you know. Um, and well, yeah, because we, we socialists maybe have something to teach the our culture about what leisure time might be. Because right. I feel I feel that even in a place like Texas and where I'm from in Oregon, um, I never really had models for, in my case, if I didn't fight to carve out time for the life of the mind, for reading, basically, um, I would be a very unhappy person. But I learned that on my own. I didn't have any books really in the home growing up or, you know, this is not taught to me, right? Yeah. I, I discovered this on my own, right? And now, it, now it's enough that I feel as if perhaps more people can feel a sense of personal liberation, but they first have to cultivate the desire for it. Mm. So it's an education in desire in some sense. Not, right. And, you know, for other people, it's not necessarily going to be a passion for life of the mind. It might be something else. But how do you decouple that from the other dynamic, which I talk about in my chapter on liberalism, of what I call the algorism uh, disease? <laughs> I don't boast. I don't call it disease, <laughs> but I can. I, I think it is a disease. Sure. It's the bootstrap, the bootstrap ideology, yeah. right? Which is the American bootstrap thing, and and you know, you know, you know the story of Horatio Alger and those little those stories that they made for for young. Um, young working class kids, I still feel that this is the kind of limited horizon of individual freedom that is on offer in America. You know, like, okay, if you're not born into wealth, the best option for you is to become a successful entrepreneur, right? But even that, you'll notice, I've seen so many successful entrepreneurs, whether they be real estate or whatever, that make a lot of money, you know what usually happens? They don't know what to do with their leisure free time when they're when they've achieved something. So the meaning of their pursuits is hollow. It's sure. hollow, right? I've seen that so much with kind of uh, petty bourgeois 
people I know, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the move, you know, I'm sure you've seen it too. It's like, you got this huge McMansion, you got a couple boats, but you, it's not clear what you are after. What are you trying to attain? Right. right. It's a hollowness, right? So the, this is, is something, it's a cultural issue. And I feel like socialists have a lot to contribute to that perhaps, you know? Well, I think uh, if we're speaking to the topic of meaningfulness, man, um, there's, I mean, I know that I went through my own sort of existential reopening of the question towards meaningfulness in my own life. And it, it largely drove me, what's what drove me to, to move back to Texas. And, um, you know, concerning the topic of meaningfulness, man, um, this is family turned out to be the most meaningful thing, you know, and, um, and, and so I, so I think that like, if, you know, those guys who, who have the boats and the house and the hollowness that comes with that sort of lifestyle, perhaps never properly received a sort of education and desire as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel that's possible. I mean, I think there's a lot of intersecting variables, of course, and um, contexts that matter sure. quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but still... But it also it, speaks to like the non-uniformity yeah. of the superego that you mentioned in your book as well, about how it's very individualized. You know, it's and uh, depending on what type of father that haunts your inner thoughts, you know, um, uh, you probably have different, uh, different outlooks and different, uh, different sort of self-constructed uh uh you know prisons in a way but um yeah i mean psychoanalysis offers a sort of interesting rebuttal to the discourse on authenticity that you find in self-help right because what psychoanalysis will show is that the process of authenticity is sort of a fool's errand and self-contradictory meaning that the outward expression what are you talking about bro it's the height of maslow's triangle right self-actualization and shit and it's like i feel like that's the height of contemporary ideology is like yeah exactly it's like it's like fucking self-actualization and being more authentic and i i don't even know if people understand like are they pulling authenticity from heidegger are they pulling it from Mm -hmm. you know like like i i feel like when you talk about the the stunting of imagination, that is one of the primary examples of like, don't we have something more inventive or cool to do than self actualize? You know. Well, yeah, I know. I mean, I, what what I was trying to to sort of point to is that psychoanalysis will show that the unconscious desire of the most pure um, political actor, right, the most righteous, I don't know, left wing progressive. Could 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 be uh, you know harboring a secret sadistic desire to to have a sexual escapade with with a loved with one of their loved ones of their own family like there's there's a certain there's a certain um, collapse of this public private distinction that psychoanalysis brings out that uh, m- complicates any. Uh, fidelity that we might have to this 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 myth of 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 authenticity and it even furthermore kind of reroutes the question away from that desire for purity right because one of the things that lacan teaches is that um the desire for purity is actually the desire for a full and totalized sense of ego 
right? Mm. And Lacan argued that psychically, your unconscious intensifies its own aggressivity when you seek to heighten a fullness of my own ego, right? And that's actually why Lacan is so important for the left, because Lacan, uh, his students um, were quite radical in moving away from an ego-centered version of the subject, right? And um, Lacan argued that that actually fomented in heightened inner violence, heightened sense of aggression, right? Sure. Uh, so psychoanalysis is 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 uh, frustrating for for these reasons, you know. I mean, because it would be nice if the self help kind of theory was was correct, but I think most of it um, is well intentioned, but maybe naive in its in its prescriptions and in its conclusions about about the human condition yeah well daniel i can't thank you enough for sitting down and having this long conversation with me about this stuff man it's been uh it, it's provided even more insight i'm going to finish off reading your book and i will probably come back to you with even more questions about all this stuff um I hope Again. we can talk about my my book on Nietzsche when it comes out next yeah, year. Yeah, we definitely have to do that. I can't wait for that. Hopefully, I can get a maybe a pre copy from you so I can oh, yeah. be ready at the time of publication for that. Um, oh, you, you bet. <clears throat> yeah, and and listeners, we have a conversation with Daniel. Daniel and I got together and talked about uh, Nietzsche and uh, Domenico Lacerdo a while back. You can uh, check that out on our main feed. And um, yeah, I, I just. You know, I've been not apprehensive towards having this conversation with you, but I've been looking forward to it and also looking forward to a time when I was like, I don't know, when I felt like I could actually articulate the some of the questions and things that went on with this. It's a it's a heavy book. Um, I also, I, I listened to your... Um, for listeners that want to hear further on this too, uh, the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour has an excellent conversation with you and uh, Cherry and Taylor over there and um i listened to that a few times uh and you know it's 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 a conversation like this this whole conversation i wouldn't be surprised if listeners have to pause and sort of think about things for a second because these are all thoughts that were i mean it seemed like every every chapter had a kind of like hey here's a new here's a new lens for you to sort of evaluate right. and analyze your family dynamic with you know and uh and this has opened up lines of thoughts uh for me that i didn't have before and so it's been something that that I really benefited from, and um, I will include a link to your book as well in the show notes and a link to Jouissance Vampires, uh, which, you know, honestly, I, I came into encountering you when I was looking for Jeff Waite stuff in the podcast world. Oh, wow. And then um, and I remember listening to Jeff Waite and, and seeing that you, I had just started reading Jeff Waite's work, and so I was yep. like, I, I have to be friends with this guy. You know, yeah, I'm what I thought, so happy so. that you reached out, yeah. Yeah, we share so many interests and it's been a real pleasure to chat with you. And, you know, I think part of the reason that the book has a lot of heavy, has a lot of heaviness, but I try to handle with lightness at the same time is, is actually a testament to psychoanalysis itself. You know, I mean, that's one of the, maybe the benefits of psychoanalysis is that it allows you to talk about the heavy stuff with a little bit more ease. Mm. Right? right. Because right. that's kind of what, what it permits you to do. Right. By, by using the talking cure, it's not so much a cure as like some radical catharsis and it's all over. 
all clean. I can go home now. No, it's a kind of constant work, but um, but it sort of gradually brings you to a better place, you know. Um, yeah. It's pretty modest. It's not. It's not a. It's not magic, you know. It's a sort of. It's, it's a really. It's rigorous, you know. Yeah. Um, so perhaps that's where that might come from. But anyways, man, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, man. You too, Daniel.